Uh, let's pray. And if, if you do have a Bible, um, please turn it to Acts chapter 8. Uh, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. But as I pray, please find your way to that passage. Gracious God, we do thank you this evening that you are the God who calls a people to yourself. You're a God that has, by the blood of Christ, created a people, the church, to be the bride. That you have washed us with your word that we might be pure at the great encounter. We stand before the throne with all nations, all tribes, worshiping your name. And we rejoice, Lord, that the, the collected core here this evening, in a small part, represent the various nations. Thank you, Lord, that the, that the gospel has gone, and the gospel is to continue to go forward. And so I pray this evening that you would bring conviction and encouragement, that the Spirit of God might minister to us through your word, that we might be compelled and emboldened to proclaim it in this way. Put this in Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, this, e this evening, um, I generally preach in the morning, so there you go. Uh, this evening, we're going to look at a passage in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And um, if you have it, I want to just encourage you to just flip it. We're going to look at it. We're going to investigate the passage. Uh, we're going to spend some time in this passage here. Listen to what the scripture says in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever experienced great joy in your city? Consider the ideas that make our cities celebrate or rejoice. For those of you who will participate this summer in Lollapalooza, great rejoicing, great celebration. It's going to be a fun time for those teens or so. Perhaps too much joy. And for those of us who take the L in public transportation downtown, we'll be lamenting that week. <laughs> Perhaps for those of you who uh, know a little bit of history, um, or have read the book, The Devil in the White City, Eric Larson's great book, um, subtitled Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America. He depicts the story of how 
Daniel Burnham, after the Great Fire, erects a wonderful city in the World's Columbian Exposition Fair in 1893. Great joy in the city, the white city. And yet at the same time, great lamentation. As Larson depicts in his nonfiction story, the serial killer murderer H.H. Holmes, who goes on about killing those individuals. The city is one of those complex realities. There's generally great celebration and at the same time, lamentation. 2016, perhaps you, where you were a part of, which was the seventh largest parade in recorded history. About five million people were downtown in Chicago. Those of you who are Cubs fans, come on, come on you got to know what happened. Cubs won after 108 years or so. Great rejoicing, but for those of us who are Southsiders, Sox fans, a little bit of lamentation. Have you considered the idea of what makes our cities celebrate a rejoicing? Our verse at the end of this passage in chapter 7 gives us a little bit of a vignette, a little note as it relates to what caused great rejoicing in this particular city. Notice how here in our passage, the inclusio, the way it begins in verse 1, with this concept that there's great persecution. For those who are in the margins, they're sensing great persecution. And yet, as the passage flows through, there's great rejoicing at the end. What causes a city to, at one moment, lament and experience great sorrow and experience great persecution to be a city that ultimately ends up rejoicing? And isn't that what we want in our cities? Isn't that what you want in your city? Isn't that what Mission Week is all about? Is it about the nations being glad because the gospel has come to them. And that's what we see in our passage this evening. I want you to know that in the face of persecution, God's people always proclaim God's word. And God's astonishing power miraculously work, works to bring city renewal through that preaching. Have you experienced persecution? Or have you thought about the Christians, our global Christians, our global Christians, uh, brothers and sisters, perhaps in, you've heard of this, the event that happened in Nigeria. 150 people killed, most of them Christians, persecuted. That just happened two weeks ago. Perhaps in this city, we don't feel the weight of persecution. And the result of not feeling the burden of persecution in our city is very little speaking about the name of Jesus. This passage will convince us that though there's great persecution, there must be great preaching that happens as a result of it or a great evangelism that happens as a result of it. In other words, what is it that God uses to get his people out of the four walls into the city speaking his name? It's persecution. That's what he gets. That's what he uses to get us out. 
But when there's too much comfort, comfort breeds complacency. And complacently, complacency ultimately leads to very little speaking about the name of Jesus. Do you want boldness? Do you want to be emboldened? This passage shows us that there are people, men and women, who spoke God's name to bring about city renewal in this way. What we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see two things. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see a great persecution that results in the scattering of the church. In verses 4 to 8, we're going to see a great message that results in rejoicing. Listen here in verses 1 through 3 again. Saul approved of his execution. The context of this passage comes from the end of chapter 7 with Stephen being martyred, the first martyr of the early primal church experience. Stephen is killed. He's stoned. Do you remember Stephen, who he was? In Acts chapter 6, we're, six, we're told about who Stephen was. He was a man f- full of the Holy Spirit and is appointed to, quote-unquote, serve tables. Why? Because the apostles were feeling the weight and tension of ministry as the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked by the Hebraic Jews, uh, widows. And as the, all the tension and the growth of the church What's the result? Conflict. The church was growing. This passage here in Acts chapter 8 is about seven years after Jesus' death. Seven years. Just seven years. And now at this point, the church, it's a mega church. How do you handle the growth of this mega church? Well, you got to appoint deacons, men and women who are capable in leading and serving the tables. But is that, is that all that they're called to do? Serve the tables, as it says there in Acts chapter 6, just to serve the table? Absolutely not. In the irony of the context of the passage, the, ones, the seven who were appointed to serve the table are given the longest speech act in the book of Acts. Stephen himself, chapter 7, preaches the name of Jesus, and as a result... He's killed. The end of chapter 8, we see Philip there as well, who was one of the seven evangelizing, speaking the name of Jesus. One of the things that's really important about this passage is that we notice here a few things here as a result of the, or what, what ensued this persecution. Notice here this man named Saul. Saul was there. Well, at the end of chapter 7, we're told that Saul was standing and giving of the approval uh, of this execution, chapter, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. We notice that Saul is obviously, at the, end of, at the beginning of chapter 9, he's converted and hears the voice of Jesus and becomes the man who is possessed by the Spirit to continue the gospel work in the city. Saul was there, and guess what Stephen did? When he sees Saul, he prays a prayer and he says, Father, forgive them. And as a result of that prayer, Saul has the capacity to be born again. In the midst of stones hitting his face, Stephen, in the midst of being persecuted, he prays. He sees the Lord Jesus rise from his throne and welcome him in. And asked that they, God himself would forgive them. And Saul was there. 
in the midst of persecution, the church, at one level, the end of chapter 7, prays. And guess what happens as a result of prayer? Conversion. Saul is converted, the greatest missionary man in the world. Not only that, notice what else happens there. Notice what happens at the beginning, um, sorry, the end of chapter uh, uh, verse 2. The church actually is scattered. Notice that what we see in verse 2, Jerusalem, there was great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, this is really significant for us to note, because when you think about what happens, what happened in Jerusalem, Jesus and his ministry, just seven years prior to this event, Jesus was active and engaged. Uh, the, the whole city itself was yet shaked as a result of this, pers- this, this uh, crucifixion of Jesus. But Jerusalem becomes sort of the, the melting pot for the growth of the gospel. It becomes the place where the gospel takes root and fruit as, uh, results as a, as a result of the gospel taking shape in there. Jerusalem becomes a place in where all people want to travel to. Now, why is this important? It's important for us to recognize that Jesus already promised persecution to his disciples. The gospel has already told us in John chapter 15. Jesus says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And now the disciples are remembering the words of their Lord Jesus just seven years prior to this. Oh, the world is going to hate me. I should not capitulate to the things of this world. I'm actually different from this world. I can't find my whole treasures in this world. I I can't get too comfortable because comfort leads to complacency. And perhaps the church in Jerusalem, at one moment, after seven years of having a flourishing ministry in Jerusalem, perhaps they said, we're going to build the greatest, biggest church. And what does Jesus do? He puts a little pressure. And he says, no, you're not. No, you're not. The gospel must come and go out of the four walls. And it must go and be driven. You must be driven. Notice here what happens in the end of verse 1 of chapter 8. Notice that little phrase there, except the apostles. At one level, you might read this and say, what are are the Christians going to do as they're being persecuted out of their own city? as they're being driven away from their homes and their identities, what are they going to do without their leaders? Who's going to preach the gospel then? Who's going to lead them and direct them? Who's going to instruct them God's word? And the beauty of this passage is that it forces the believers to say, we must own the very thing that we believe We must have self-watch for our own lives. We must be active participants in the ministry. We must not just think that it's they who feed me. Yes, they do. But it's incumbent upon us through the Spirit of the Lord to speak His name. And that's what we see here in chapter 8, verse 1. 
the city that was once the center of the growth of the gospel in Jerusalem, the place in where most leaders from around Jerusalem would travel and go to these wonderful church growth concept conferences in Jerusalem. They would say, this is the place to be. I want to just get into that one big place. Jesus puts a little pressure. And he says, no, it's time to go out. But why would this happen? Why would this pressure cause the people to send forth or go out from that place? Well, obviously, we have to know the structure of the book itself to recognize where we're situated in the passage. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus, right before he ascends to heaven, he looks at his disciples and the disciples say, Jesus, will you at this time bring and usher in the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, but you, you will receive power. Chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has already promised that the gospel just can't sit in one little city. The gospel is going to be forced out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This, which was a Jewish, sort of almost sectarian kind of experience in Jerusalem at this point, is now forced out into the edges, into another parts. Chapter 8 is the beginning of the gospel flowing through to the other, to the nations, to the marginalized, to the minority of, not the majority, but the minority. And it flows out in that way. Notice also what's significant in this passage here, that those who were reluctant to go are forced to go. Notice the big thing that happens here at the, um, in verse 2. There's great lamentation. Lamentations are being made. And at one level, you might just read verse 2, and it's almost as if Luke, the author of this book, doesn't let us sit in lamentation. Lamentation is a wonderful thing, and churches ought to practice the, the, the actual posture of lamentation, lamenting. Lamenting is about sharing our sorrow and giving a complaint. That's what lamentation is. And they're lamenting the fact that their, their, their leader, uh, Stephen, was just murdered. The last time they experienced this was Jesus seven years prior to this. He was just killed. There's lamentation, but but you, we, we don't have time to just sit in that space. Look at verse 3. What happens? Saul was ravaging the church and enters house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I, I mean, this is, at one level, it is, it is blunt, traumatic. They're, they're weeping as a result of their man who's just been killed and now ravaging house to house, dragging them out. This is not benign. To be a Christian? He caused them, and they're dragged out. And when the Christians, at that moment, who wanted to retreat and say, I've had enough of this, I've, they've lost their home, 
They've lost their identity, all, all of their equity in their home. I mean, think about it. You, you lose your condo, your house, your apartment. What do you have? These, these guys had nothing. And it doesn't stop. And at the first moment when you and I would have said, I'm done. I've had it. The city's too hard. I'm, I'm going back to the burbs. It's easier out there. Because you've, because we've all experienced that. We've all experienced broken windows, things being stolen. We've, we, we've lived in the city, my wife and I, for 20 years. We've had 13 bicycles stolen. Welcome to the city. We've had people try to break in our house. We bought a house in 2011 in North Lawndale. Five days into owning the house, we didn't move in it yet. It was a total gut rehab. Five days into buying the house, someone broke in, set it on fire. Welcome to the city. But what do we do? Do we cower back and say, no, you know, yeah, I've had enough. The Spirit of the Lord in you gives you the courage and boldness to continue on. The Spirit of the Lord says, greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. And for the sake of them knowing the gospel, you proclaim the gospel. You preach it to yourself. You don't cower back. We don't cower back. We're, we're pushed. We're like, our bodies are like clay. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're wasting away. But in us is the glorious message of the gospel that nothing can shake us from. Nothing. Weep, lament for a moment for that which is of this little treasure. But greater is your reward. Greater is your reward. This world is not your home. You are passing by. The Christians in Acts 8 said, we, we count it all loss. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. Why are you holding on to this world? It's only caused you to be comfort, comfortable. And the result is complacency. Jesus presses in and brings persecution in order that you might get out and proclaim the name of Christ. What are you waiting for? Your, new, your neighbors? Your, your coworkers? Th they need the message. They, you're, the, you're the embodiment of Jesus. You are the scriptures live to them. What are we waiting for? The great persecution results in the scattering of the church in verses 1 and 3. But notice what else happens here. When people lose their home, when people are fleeing their countries because of the persecution, when people have lost their identity, when they're seeking asylum, what happens? A great message is necessary. Look at verse 4. 
the great message that results in rejoicing. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. There's no talk of seeking retribution. There's no talk of having some sort of litigious sort of aspect to this, trying to reclaim what was taken from them. There's only one thing that verse 4 speaks about because it is the only thing that matters. They preach. They evangelize. The word, the word you might think of preaching as I'm doing right now behind a pulpit, the actual word is they evangelize, that they carry it with themselves and embody the gospel. Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected, Jesus alive. They, the church, who? The apostles? The leaders of the church? Everyone engaged in the activity of evangelizing and speaking. Everyone did it. What are we waiting for? Those who were scattered. Who? Who was scattered? All were scattered. Look at verse 1. They were all scattered. They count their life as lost. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And notice the example that's given. Philip. Philip, again, that man that was chosen in Acts chapter 6. A man full of the Holy Spirit. A man who demonstrated what it means to serve the table as a give his life to the church. A man who was, who was devoted to the ministry. We, we are told of a simple case study of just one of those individuals. Just one, but they were all doing it. One little case study that Luke acts here in verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip receives the Holy Spirit proclaims God's word. But here's what's significant about this. Who were the Samaritans at that point in relations in the context of the Jews? They were enemies. The Jews hated the Samaritans. It was unlawful for them to associate with each other. That's why, that's why John chapter 4 is so scandalous when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. Here, Philip is scattered he just lost his home. He's kicked out of his city. And he's preaching the gospel message. And he goes to the enemy. The enemy. I mean, th this crosses the political lines, doesn't it? I mean, if you get to, if you get to Acts chapter 10... We see Peter preaching at Cornelius' house. And, and guess what Peter says in Acts chapter 10? He says, don't you know that it is unlawful for me? Chapter 10, verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for Jew, a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone other of another nation. It's against the law, what he's doing in Acts chapter 10. And now... Philip is going to his enemy, and he's preaching the gospel to them. He preaches in Samaria. 
He proclaims the message. And notice what's so significant about this. The man who was just simply to serve the tables has dynamic power in speaking the name so that people are converted, lives are saved, people are transformed by this message. Look at uh, what happens there. The, the preaching is accompanied with signs. I mean, there's great healing that results of it. Signs and wonders were performed through the name of the holy servant Jesus. That's, that's what we see in this passage there. There's great signs that are happening as a result of it, which is really a fulfillment of Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 47, isn't it? It's, it's a reality of what happens in this idea that the gospel itself is now flowing through. Notice what else happens there. Unclean spirits, they're crying out with a loud voice. They came out, verse 7, of the many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so what we see here is the result of this preaching, as a result of everyone preaching God's name, there's city renewal. There's great rejoicing in the city. What's going to transform Chicago? The impending reality of a new mayor? Incredible, awesome new schools? I, I mean, it's, it's a component of it, right? Yes, some of, it's okay to say yes. It, it can bring city renewal. New policies, absolutely. That could bring city renewal. A, a, a system that is gutted, a, a, that, that has systemic problems, and where we see a lot of injustice in our system, yeah, that needs to be gutted out. It needs to be completely renovated, doesn't it? Th those things can bring city renewal. But what ultimately can bring city renewal is the gospel. And it's not just the concept of the gospel. It's actually God's people, you and me, actually engaging with our neighbors. Hi, how's it going? I'm your neighbor. I noticed you, you need help with something. Can I help you with that? Your coworker, who actually watches you every single day and says, I think there's something different about that individual because of the conduct and the purity of your own life filled with integrity. We need Christians. We need to be people who, who not only embody it by the way that we, what, the things that we do, but what we say. That's what happens in this city or in this experience here in Acts chapter 8. Now, one more thing that I want to just close off by saying. Was, what does it take for us to think, to see, this, to have an effective ministry or have an effective ministry that brings about this kind of renewal? I want you to know, first of all, that what we see from this text, this passage here, we need the word. We need God's word. We need to be men and women who engage in God's word on a constant basis. The reality is that Satan hates you. He hates your family. He hates your children. And he'll do everything he can to snatch out the seed of the gospel, God's word, in your life. 
Why is it that there's complacency? It's because we have far too little of investment in God's word personally. And if we were honest, you would admit it. Far too little. These individuals in Acts chapter 8, they gave themselves to the word. They spoke about the word. They embodied the word. See, the renewal happens when God's people engage in God's word and live under its authority. Not only that, notice what happens here. Said renewal happens as a result of individuals having and performing good deeds. There's legitimate healing that happens in this passage. There, there are demons that are being cast out. There's a physical healing. Do we believe that God can bring healing and restoration to all aspects of life, not just the four walls in our spaces of churches? Do we actually think that there actually can be remedy as a result of the $6 million billion of deficit that we're experiencing in the city? Yes. Do we think that our political system can actually be reversed and changed? Perhaps. Yes. We must believe that God's people, when they see needs, actually engaged and gave of, of an abundance mentality out of their generosity, gave to meet those needs. We saw that already in Acts chapter 4, where Barnabas actually says, you know, I actually have an extra field. I'm going to just sell that. And all the proceeds of Acts chapter 4, when Barnabas sells his field, he lays it at the apostles' feet. And guess what all that money does? It brings healing, and it expedites the mercy, the, 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 the program of mercy in their church and beyond. The third thing that we need to do if we're going to see city, city renewal is we have to recognize that racial reconciliation is a part of it. The Jews going to Samaria, the Jews going to those places the margins where they're at? Yes. Philip is the new Jonah. And Jonah, yet though he preaches God's word to them, is hardened as a result of going to Nineveh. He's hardened, and he's mad, and he's angry. I can't believe that they turned and he's so much concerned about just the, the weed that's growing and it's taken away the shade that he can't even rejoice with them. Those who were in the margins find the empowerment of the gospel and their lives are transformed. We need to be a people that recognize that, that we were in the margins and we are in the margins, those of us who are whatever race we might find ourselves. And we judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of the character. And so we must be the initiating force, the church, of bringing racial reconciliation. We must open our, our, our tables and have people who don't look like us into our spaces. When's the last time you had someone who is not of your own race, in your table, at your table, speaking the name of Jesus, 
to them. If we're going to see city renewal, we must initiate that. If we're going to see city renewal, there's got to be a sweet, fourthly, a sweet collaboration within the Christians. There's no more tribalism anymore. No more that that church is doing that thing and we're in our own little thing. We work together because we are part of the restored, renewed kingdom people. We're doing this not out of a a mentality of tribalism or scarcity, but an abundance mentality through the Holy Spirit working and seeking to see the city renew in that way. May the Lord bless you in that work. Let's pray. Father, we are glad for the way that you call us to um, yourself through your word. And I pray that this evening that your, that your spirit would enable your people to be filled with your spirit so that the word of God might dwell richly amongst them. And that having dwelt upon your word, may they be emboldened to speak your name. May they not hold back. May they, may they be powerful in your spirit, Lord to proclaim your name for the sake of the nations. May we, be, may we testify that one day all nations will rejoice, all tongues will come and worship at the feet of the great throne of God himself. We rejoice in that work. We can't wait to be there. But as we wait, we ask that you would embolden us to do that work here for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.